Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. They made really poor choices on a lot of different things. They had a very flawed strategy. Even the things they did right, they found a way to mess up. With 11 championship titles, 10 just since 1980, the LA Lakers are one of the most storied and valuable franchises in all of sports. But since grabbing their last trophy in 2010, the Lake Show has been in the throes of unprecedented chronic craptitude. They are 20 and 47 this season, on top of 181 losses over the prior three seasons. Family members who own the team are trying to oust one another and lawyer up ahead of the offseason. Magic Johnson is back in the front office. Palace coup left and right. How did the Lakers get here? And where to now? Stay with us. This week's broadcast of Full Disclosure made possible by my good friends at Elwood Thompson. Since 1989, located at the top of Carytown, really the best market in Richmond. Customer empowerment, non-GMO, no advertising to children, locally made and prepared foods, healthy oils. You have a food advocate there. You have a health coach. You have Rick and Molly Hood. You have Indian Wednesdays and the third Thursday pairings menus. You must check them at the corner of Elwood's and Thompson's, hence the name, and at elwoodthompsons.com. Joining us from SoCal, land of double-double animal styles, two miles per hour traffic on the 405, jet black beamers all over Ventura Boulevard, and yes, the new look Los Angeles Chargers, is ESPN senior writer Ramona Shelbourne, author of How Did the Lakers Get Here? The Inside Story of the Bus Drama. It's an epic piece on ESPN.com. You must read it. How are you, madam? God, are you trying to come up with, like, different verses for that Randy Newman song? I love <laughs> L.A. <laughs> no, we, we used the Lenny Kravitz song at the very top. We were thinking kind of what, you know, what embodies it? Did we go with, like, Beach Boys, 60s? You know, he pictures his, like, geographic landmarks, right? So, you know, it's, it's Century Boulevard. We love it, right? Like, we love it. <laughs> so you well, just picked out the 405? I don't know if we love it. The 405, the 101. You know, <laughs> I've been, as I told you offline, I've been a Lakers fan for time immemorial, ever since I came here from Iran. Mm-hmm. And growing up in Miami, we didn't have a basketball franchise uh, yet the NBA came there in the late 80s and whatnot. Um, and I was spoiled in the 80s, Ramona. I mean, be it 1980, 82, Magic Johnson, James Worthy, Kurt Rambis. Every year we were contenders, damn it. I mean, Jerry Buss, the uh, late owner of the Lakers who passed away in 2013, he had us contending every year and I was spoiled up until you could argue, what was it, 2010 and maybe Kobe stuck around too long. I don't recall any time in history uh, where the team has kind of been as rudderless as it is now. No, never. I mean, that's what's that's what's so dispiriting about this is like, I can't look at their current roster and say that they're anywhere even close now after the changes they made. I mean, I still think they're two or three years away. And, you know, if you're the Lakers, like I, I bet the only – I grew up in L.A., so I, I had the same experience as you did with the Lakers where they were just good. Like the Lakers were just the team. They just always were in the Western Conference Finals or contending for the finals or winning championships. And so it's uh, – I guess the the biggest drought I could think of is is right after Magic Johnson was diagnosed with, with HIV in HIV, 1991. Right. Um, then he kind of played a little while. He retired and then he – came back and he retired again and there was a couple of years in there where they were hey, I don't they, they weren't bad but they weren't good right they they had a team that sure. had built been built around magic the Cedric and, the Cedric Sabalos yeah, days yeah Dale three and, yeah. and Nick Van Exel years Nick right? Van Brick you know? Nick Van Brick I remember that <laughs> he was now an assistant coach for the Memphis Grizzlies go did figure, you know that go I, I didn't yeah. think he had the coaching de- demeanor <laughs> last I remembered he, he headbutted a ref or something like that but those yeah. were you know and then a miracle happened you always knew under under Jerry Buss who was a poker player and uh, was a gambler was a swashbuckler uh, kind of larger than life got this team you know, for for pennies compared to what it's worth now, what close to three billion dollars, and then championships: 2010, 2009, 2002, 2001, 2000, 88, 87, 85, 82, 1980. All of this under his watch. You talk about the Pat Riley years, uh, the Magic years, Kobe, who only retired last season. What we we knew that he was sick. He was missing lots of games and and ultimately succumbed to illness in 2013. You always imagined that the team was going to be bequeathed neatly to to Ginny Buss, who was his heir apparent and and the the next most public facing person of Lakers ownership. 
Yeah, I mean, I, you know, look, Jerry Buss set it up where all of his kids sort of had a chance at this. They, they all had a chance to prove themselves. Um, and, you know, he, you know, Jerry Buss didn't just own the Lakers. He owned the Kings, the L.A. Sparks and the WNBA. He owned the... Um, he owned the lasers, he owned world team tennis, you know, the strings. Remember those guys? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and even he owned the forum. And so all of, all of the kids had a crack at this. They all, they, the four older ones at least. Um, and that would be Johnny, Jim, Jimmy, who well, it feels weird to call him Jimmy, but his name is Jim Buzz, right? <laughs> Johnny, Jim, Jeannie, and Janie is the younger sister. Um, and they all sort of had a, a chance to have roles within the family empire. Uh, Johnny for sort of famously ran the lasers and the sparks into the ground um, and sort of left the family business after that and has been off on his own doing his own business stuff for a while. Um, Jim, you know, worked in the forum for a while, then went away and trained horses for a while, came back to the fold, apprenticed under Jerry West to run the basketball operations and was very close to his dad. I mean, I think people don't give Dr. Boss enough credit for as the the lengths he went to train Jim to be in this in the position he had been in, and then Jeannie, she'd always kind of been the the really accomplished one. She'd been the, she finished USC. She was a great businesswoman. I mean, in a lot of ways, it was strange when she didn't get the sparks to run. I mean, this is the the female women's basketball team here in Los Angeles. He had a natural candidate here who had already proven herself with world team tennis and she was running the forum and, but Jerry Buss in a lot of ways, he does what a lot of, does what a lot of, um, men throughout history have done powerful men, which is usually the, it's the firstborn male heir gets the kingdom, right? I mean, that's usually the line of succession with Kings throughout history. And so that it, it followed that pattern where you thought, okay, John, you got the first crack at it and it didn't work out. And Jim's going to get a crack at it. And Jeannie was the real, was the real brains in the family. She was the real businesswoman in the family. Hmm. Um, and she accomplished herself. She, she, she really was accomplished in that line of work, but she didn't want anything to do with basketball. She kept, she would always yeah. say, I don't know what I don't know. And she knows she 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 doesn't know basketball. She didn't want to meddle in basketball. She wanted to kind of leave that to the experts. And Janie, that's the youngest daughter, who a lot of people forget about Janie, but you certainly wouldn't have to read the story that we just wrote on ESPN. Um, Janie Janie's a nice, really nice woman. She's the younger sister sister who lives out in Temecula, which is uh, sort of a rural area outside of Los Angeles. It's a wine country out there. A lot of people who train horses live out there. And yet, as you documented in this epic story, we saw. A mutiny at the Staples Center where the Lakers are. I mean, earlier, you know, it's a couple of weeks ago, it was the Lakers are looking at a fourth straight losing season, which is kind of un- unprecedented under the buses. Mm-hmm. She fired the EVP of player personnel, her brother Jim Buss, longtime GM Mitch Kupchak, who's like, you know, close to royalty and he's almost considered a Lakers untouchable. She fired the communications director, John Black, and she came in and out of left field promoted Lakers great. Uh, an advisor she brought on, Magic Johnson, who happens to be part owner of the Dodgers as well. And what I learned, what I didn't realize, is that at the same time, the Bus family had also treated Magic Johnson in the early 80s almost like a son, almost like an alternate heir apparent. Yeah, you know, you have to piece things together as they happen in real time, right, to understand it, is that Magic Johnson was drafted number one overall in 1979, the first year that Dr. Jerry Buss owned the Lakers. So he buys the team, and the Lakers serendipitously have the the first pick, and there's a long story of how they ended up with the first pick. Um, one of those sort of charmed life Sure. Tales and that, that's happened. You know, yeah. that's happened several times with the Lakers. We know what happened with yeah. Kobe and with Pau Gasol. Uh, they're overdue for one of those charm things happening again. But anyway, go ahead. Right. So they so they so they draft Magic number one overall. And at his first press conference, like, welcome to Los Angeles. Jeannie Buss is in the office. Jeannie Buss is 17 at the time. Magic's 19. Um, she was still in high school and, and was about to go to USC for, for college. Um, and she walks him in the office and says, you know, hey, welcome to L.A. My first my first job here is to kind of take you around and make sure that you're comfortable and fitting in here. Um, and I think that began this sort of beautiful friendship that they've had over the years. I mean, this is now, she's 55, so so it's like 40 years, almost 40 year friendship. Yeah, but I mean, the granularity you got into, he would go over to the bus mansion and play pool. He would, he would go work out early Saturday mornings and drive with them to USC games. I mean, he was really 
Yeah. A son. I mean, a son yeah. who came from Michigan, no less. He was not a, you know, he was not a Los Angelino. He promptly had that that Playboy baptism, I think, in oh, yeah. in SoCal under the buses. But I didn't realize to what extent, you know, as an extracurricular thing, he was he was essentially one of the bus family. You know, the first time I, I heard that actually was when I read his book. He wrote My Life, you know, the, yeah. the Magic's autobiography. And he talked about how close he was to Dr. Buss. And I, I just couldn't believe it. I was like, well, you were partying with the owner? They, it was, they had these amazing parties over at Dr. Buss's house. Oh, no, right? we and know. And there was a bestseller written was, about that yeah. on Showtime, so right? He was just always over there. And then the other, you know, when there wasn't a party, he was over there playing pool and hanging out. I mean, he was really a father figure to him. Um, and, and I, and I, he was kind of, a, it was a brother to the to the other four bus kids and so one of the things that Janie bus said this Janie the youngest sister said in the story which I thought really clicked for me was you know she said my dad left him a piece of the team my dad gave him a piece of the team when he retired he gave him five percent of the Lakers and she said you know I know other people wanted that I mean there were other Laker sure. greats who of course would have wanted a piece of the team but the only one that Jerry bus gave any portion of the team, any shares in the Lakers too, was Magic Johnson. And if that doesn't tell you that he thinks of you like a son, I don't know what else does. And not only that, you look back at, at, at uh, Magic Johnson's biography, right? Growing up in Lansing, mm-hmm. Michigan, to exceedingly blue collar, uh, lower class blue collar parents. Um, uh, his father did janitorial work at a used car lot, also collected garbage and never missed a day at GM where he worked. So Magic would often help his dad on the garbage route, and he was teased by other kids as, you know, they called him garbage man. And yeah. imagine then being transported, being a star at Michigan State, and then mm-hmm. coming into the crucible of Southern California, really at the foot of the mountain of this Lakers yeah. dynasty, uh, which 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 I just remember in the 80s, every, you know, every spring it would be, it would be the Lakers against the Celtics. It would be well, worthy and magic against against those bastards from Boston with Tommy the Heisen. The Lakers helped define Los Angeles. I mean, that's that's the thing. Like, if you grew up here, there's only there's only one way to understand this, which is that the Lakers helped make L.A. cool. I mean, that the, Los Angeles in the '80s was. This is when L.A. really came of age. I mean, well, we was... had the Dodgers, in fairness. I mean, the Dodgers were winning the World Series in the early 80s, and then, you know, Gibby in, in, in the Yeah, but in World terms Series. of, like, cultural, it was cool. That's sports, but this was culture. Sure. I mean, I'm not just talking just the Lakers were really good. Like, Showtime became synonymous with Los Angeles. It wasn't, it was like, we, we sort of are cooler than you, and we run up and down the court, and we play faster, and we make of trick course. plays. And, no to under, and to underscore it, in the 34 years mm-hmm. Jerry Buss owned the Lakers, as you point out in your story they missed the playoffs only twice and now it's it's the order of the day i mean 2010 was the last title and just to illustrate it for you it was that epic rematch i mean they lost to the celtics beforehand and mm-hmm. you thought that there was going to be a rubber match the lakers beat the celtics in 2010 look to what extent these franchises have diverged the lakers as of today are 20 and 47 seller dwellers in the pacific effectively tanking so they can preserve you know top three draft picks Whereas the Celtics uh, are second in the East, they're forty-two and twenty-five. Um, discuss, if you will, for a few minutes, the different tough decisions that these owners made since these teams met in the twenty ten finals. Well, it's it's pretty it's pretty simple. Boston decided to tear it down, and the Lakers decided to try to keep it going for a while, right? I mean, Boston said, you know, Red Auerbach always had this saying that you you always want to trade somebody a year too early as opposed to a year too late. Um, and Boston, after that run, uh, decided they were going to move on from the Kevin Garnett, Ray Allen, and Paul Pierce era. And, uh, you know, the, the, the big famous trade that, that where Paul Pierce and, and Kevin Garnett get traded to the Brooklyn Nets, a trade the Nets are still paying for. I mean, they still owe all these first round picks to the Celtics, which is sort of helped fuel the Celtics rebuild because, you know, they haven't used all those picks sure. yet. They're really valuable. Whereas the Lakers tried to keep it going for a little while. Um, they hung Kobe on to Bryant Kobe. They couple. gave him a massive contract kind of as a yep. valedictory, as a sinecure for the very end. Mm-hmm. And that could have been criticized like, yes, loyalty. What a what, whatever, whatever. Steve Nash. I mean, turns out I, I say arguably the one player in the NBA who has hurt the Lakers more than anyone else over twenty years. Not only as a as a player of the Mavericks and as the you know Phoenix mm-hmm. Suns, but as a Laker, which was a disastrous acquisition, and they're still paying for it with they these really contingencies are. and draft picks. And then Dwight Howard, who they kind of doubled down on. Luckily, they didn't convince Dwight Howard to stay in L.A. He then you know decamped for Houston, and he's been someone else's disaster. But then they made these these really knuckleheaded decisions. On 
under uh, Jim Buss, right? You think about Timothy Mozgov, you think about Luol Deng, all the money that's locked up in these players. And and I guess the Kobe family, you know, the metaphor we have of Magic Johnson being like family, maybe that extended to Kobe in spite of all of his, his tension with the team and even asking to be traded when he wasn't happy before they brought in Pau Gasol. They kept him for way too long, and they tied up assets for way too long just for the sake of this exit you know, season, this exit tour. And now it seems like the entire franchise is paying the tab for that. Well, to some extent, I agree with it. But but the other side is, you know, they had decisions that they made that just didn't pan out, right? Like, you know, you could have predicted that Steve Nash would get hurt eventually. He was like 38. Um, and generally speaking, you don't need an actuary to tell you that that players at that age tend to get hurt. Um, but I, I, I didn't have as big a problem with the Kobe contract as, as other people because, quite frankly, like he had he made them money from a business perspective. He filled the seats. He kept the interest. He People were lining up to yeah, watch Ramona, him every What was the game. point of last year? We're all kind of looking at each other, right, and, and Byron Scott mm-hmm. and everybody. And we're knowing this is the Kobe show. And, yes, he, what, he downed 60 for his final game. But everybody knew that that other players ostensibly resented him. And it's like, all right, you, you really overstayed your welcome. Well, Would listen, Kobe Robin, not have liked to have gone off for two years and wanna, maybe had a shot at a trophy somewhere no, else? he wanted to retire as a Laker. And I think one of the things that – I think people miss about this, which I was trying to explain to you earlier, was when when they signed him to that contract, that's not the death knell. The death knell was the other decisions that they didn't make. The, Isaiah Thomas wanted to be a Laker. He's off in Boston as an all-star right now, one of the most clutch players in the NBA. We're talking the I mean, next the, the next generation Isaiah right, Thomas, not Kyle, the not the rival from yeah. the Pistons, just for our, our lay <laughs> listeners, right? Kyle, Kyle Lowry wanted to be a Laker. They could have there were so many other free agents that the Lakers could have had that would have built the team in a completely different way where they would have remained competitive and, and maybe even done something um, in the in the Western Conference or the playoffs. But they simply didn't go after those guys for because they weren't, quote unquote, stars. They weren't, quote unquote, the, the superstars on the Carmelo Anthony or LeBron James or LaMarcus Aldridge level. Um, and so they they there's all I mean, I, I'd written a story about a month earlier uh, sort of detailing this this failed plan to go after the big star to play play alongside Kobe and pass the torch to. They got so fixated on this, we got to get a superstar that they forgot to build a team. And I think, you know, the Kobe contract, you say whatever you want about it. I, I've always come down on the side that that, that to me is, is this, it's a simplistic way of thinking about it. Is that there, basketball is it is about basketball and winning and all that. But I, I really believe that he, him retiring as a Laker it helped their franchise and their mystique through a very bad time when the front office really failed on a lot of other accounts. And, and for example, you don't think that applies in Boston? I mean, in Boston, you can argue the Celtics play second fiddle to the Red Sox. And, mm-hmm. you know, they've they've always kind of been the second or third priority in terms of sports going there. But they had no love loss. Like, they smashed that up. They They broke up the triple play. Uh, when they had to, when they saw that there was value to it, and they they pulled one on the Brooklyn Nets, and here they are, net result. We're talking seven years later. I know it can't necessarily be apples to apples, but the two teams in the finals in 2010, one is 20 and 47, the other is like the opposite of that right now. And the Celtics are ascendant, mm-hmm. and they they might give the Cavs a hard time in the East. Well, the difference is the Celtics, you know, sort of they they didn't go for the nostalgia play. They didn't do, go for the honor of your legends play. Uh, but I would argue that Kobe was more important to the Lakers than Paul Pierce was to the Celtics. I know he played his whole career there. And oh, look, Paul Paul won one title. Kobe won five. That's that's a different order of magnitude here. Mm. When, Col- when Paul's on his farewell tour, I mean, he got to have the last shot there in Boston when he was with the Clippers. Right. But I, I don't think he's the same Mount Rushmore type player in the NBA that Kobe Bryant was. And and the other side of it too is that it's not just that decision. There was if you if you read the story from about a month ago, I mean there's there are so many decisions. There's so many different yeah. even draft picks that they've that they messed up or or other other ways they could have improved the team. They would sit around and wait for LaMarcus Aldridge or Carmelo Anthony or LeBron James to make decisions. And, like, and it would just like, cumulatively, it would just make the franchise's mystique look worse. People would say, no, no, I mean, I don't want, I didn't want to play for Byron Scott. You would hear mm-hmm. from other people. 
And so I, I just think, I just think the, uh, you know, even in spite of the fact that Forbes pegs them as the second most valuable franchise in the NBA to the Knicks, both teams right now, both franchises are really have, have seen better days. Um, a lot of that brand equity has been dented. When we saw players kind of turn their noses up and say, oh, I don't want to be part of a rebuilding effort there. They're kind of rudderless. You wonder um, if they could have or should have done different things in the wake of 2011. Yeah, I definitely think they should have. Um, but I think in this in this situation, um, uh, not to defend any of it, I, I I think it's pretty clear that they made really poor choices on a lot of different things. They had a very flawed strategy, um, and you have guys like even even the things they did right, they found a way to mess up. So let's go. There's a trade that people don't talk about all the time. And remember, they traded Steve Blake, who was a, a oh, great yeah. point guard that they had. He's <laughs> yeah, sure. a good player for the Lakers. Then um, there was one year where it was pretty obvious they weren't going to make the playoffs, and they needed to start rebuilding, and they needed to do something different. So they so they traded Steve Blake to the Golden State Warriors for a guy named Kent Bazemore. Oh. And at the time, people didn't realize, who's Kent Bazemore? He was the guy who jumped up and down and cheered on the bench a lot. And I remember the Lakers saying, yeah, we really like him. We think he's a good player. Mm-hmm. So they they play Kent Bazemore, and he, he has a really nice uh, last 30 games of the year, or 25 games of the year. He's in L.A., and he wants to resign. And this is one of those ones where, okay, you did the right thing. You, you found a player. You traded a veteran. You got a young player who you – you can you can develop and grow, and then you can re-sign him for a, a small, you know, a sort of a hometown discount. Uh, but instead, they waited too long. I think it was Lamarcus Aldridge was that summer, and Kent Bazemore leaves for it to sign a two-year, I think it was about four million dollar contract with Atlanta. And then, you know, as as these things go, he blossoms with the Hawks. He he comes back around as a free agent this year, and now the choice is between re-signing with the Hawks and going to the Lakers. The Lakers actually offered him more money this year, <laughs> but he. <laughs> signs with the Hawks because they were the ones who were so loyal to him. And you look at the, this is even when you did things right, you still didn't do things right. And and you look at you know, a lot of that has to go to just the the way they operated under Jim Buss and Mitch Kupchak, which was sure. Mitch Kupchak is very deliberate in his thinking, very conservative. And he was he frustrated a lot of I, I know it because I talked to all the agents and the other general managers is that he takes a long time to make choices and a lot of times to mm. make decisions. And sometimes when you snooze, you lose. Right. Sure. When you when you while you were thinking, everyone else was acting, and you know the Lakers sort of haven't operated at the speed of business in quite some time. And so you, you know, I think Jeannie saw this all unfolding, and it wasn't just it really wasn't just Jim Buss. That's a lot of people just say, okay, it's between her and her brother. No, it was a series of um, unfortunate events actually over the past seven or eight years. Yeah, and some of them, or you could say they were unlucky. I mean, yeah. Steve Nash breaking his leg two games sure, into sure. the season, but but a lot of it is just a style of business that just quite simply was not working anymore. Full disclosure: you are listening to Ramona Shelburne, Lakers guru with ESPN. She's kind enough to join us on the tail end of her vacation. She was out in spring training country uh, in Arizona. Uh, Ramona, I actually want to get to this one headline Mm -hmm. uh, because we talk about all these self-inflicted wounds by the Los Angeles Lakers. But on December 8th, 2011, two words altered the course of NBA history, basketball reasons. Uh, unpack that for me. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because the Lakers don't like to talk about that anymore. We've moved on. Actually, no, you haven't. That still is <laughs> – the failed Chris Paul trade is still doing damage to the Los Angeles Lakers. And you now as they much tried, as let's say, see, to, to unpack it, they tried to get Chris mm-hmm. Paul, who's now the all-star. He was a New Orleans Hornet uh, back then, was it? Mm-hmm. Um, and they tried to offload Lamar Odom, who, who crashed and burned after that, and Pau Gasol, who was – who was aging, and he went to the Bulls after that, but he helped them with their with their title run uh, in 2010 and before that. And that was nixed by David Stern for basketball reasons. Right. So the Lakers, you know, you asked me about the Celtics and sort of how they tried to reboot things. I mean, they yeah, they traded away some of their best players before they got too old, and so did the Lakers. I mean, really, they they really did do the same thing. They were going to trade away Lamar Odom and Pau Gasol before the the team got too old, got too slow, got too you know sort of past its prime. And I think they recognized that that current team, the one with Lamar and Pau and Kobe, and uh, wasn't going to win. It was like that the shelf life on that team had probably passed. And so they they execute this brilliant trade for Chris Paul from the New Orleans from from New Orleans, and it was all done right as the new collective bargaining agreement was being signed. And as it happened, um, it was probably almost too good of a trade. You ever hear the expression, sometimes you can make too good of a deal? Um, it, it was too good of a deal. And the other NBA owner said, wait a minute, what did we just have a lockout for? You know, the, this is the lockout was to 
keep teams but Ramona, like the they've gotten from away succeeding. they've gotten away with that in the past they got away with that with mm-hmm. with Pau Gasol who I forgot who they gave up for Pau Gasol or they effectively traded Vladi Divac for Kobe Bryant maybe the, <laughs> the most ridiculous trade in NBA history right and and people resent the fact that the Lakers can uniquely do this but for the first time in memory the NBA gods descend and say uh-uh yeah, and I, you know, if you look at it and say, okay, what did the Lakers do wrong there? I don't think they did anything wrong except for they did not read the room. I mean, the room in New York when the Board of Governors were meeting to approve the new collective bargain agreement. This is like a lockout that just ended. They went to great pains to ensure that small market teams can compete with large market teams. In a lot of ways, it was a reaction against what LeBron James and Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh had done down in Miami and forming this super team. And so a lot of the issues at play were to punish teams like from 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 large market cities from forming new teams, new new super teams, and without even waiting for the meeting to be over, for the board of governors meeting to be over, the Lakers, Pelicans, and sorry, I think they were the Hornets back then. The Lakers, New Orleans, and um, and Houston was involved in this trade. Execute this brilliant trade. But it was if they would have just waited like maybe two, three, two, three hours for all the owners to fly home from New York, maybe it would have been different. And the person who who brought this up, who brought up, hey, you, you should read the room was actually Jeannie Buss mm. in a revised edition of her book, Laker Girl. She updated that section and said, you know, Jeannie Buss was the governor of the Lakers at the time. Jeannie Buss was working, you know, she was the alternate governor and her dad had sent her in his place to that board of governors meeting. She was the one in the room, but they weren't telling her what they were doing on the basketball side. They weren't saying, hey, Jeannie, just so you know, we're about to trade for Chris Paul. She was in the in the office and she could have told that, And I, I read your story and that was really a revelation to me. I was always under the impression that Jeannie mm-hmm. Buss, especially in that she was dating Phil Jackson, the Lakers, yep. the Lakers coach, that she was, you know, intimately in the loop on these things. And her father patched her in and and back when you no know, Magic Johnson well, remember, was a minority. The timing owner. here, 2011, Phil Jackson had retired. Hmm. Okay, so he retired at the end of that season when they got swept out of the second round of the playoffs by the Dallas Mavericks. Then they go in, then there's a lockout. And she's not connected really to the decision-making brain trust. So she's not connected to her father and her brother and Mitch Kupchak as they're executing this trade. And so she writes in her book, says, you know, if they would have just told me they were about to do this, I would have said, guys, just give it a few hours. Make sure it doesn't leak for a few hours. Don't do any trade calls. Don't do anything until we all, you know, people get out and let the new CBA sink in. But they didn't because they weren't talking. And, and you know, some of the some of the stuff we write about and, and, and talk about with the Lakers, you have to remember, Jerry Buss was still alive for a lot of this. Was he, was he cogent? Just, was he cogent when that oh, happened? Yeah. Was he off and was he oh, sick? Yeah. Absolutely. He in was, 2011. He was and so, 2011. yeah, I mean, you could have ostensibly with a little bit of finesse, Kobe Bryant could have finished off his career with Chris Paul and maybe another big man. Pau Gasol would have been gone, but maybe that would have been appealing. You never know. Um, <laughs> the Clippers wouldn't have been the cat's meow in L.A. for the past five or six years. But so much as, you know, crying over spilled draft picks, as I like to say. Also, we we go back, you know, talk about 2011. That's when Jerry West, um, Lakers mm-hmm. legend, joined the Golden State Warriors an executive, as an executive board member. Uh, in 2002, he became GM of the Memphis Grizzlies, and he was looking for something new. But in 2011, to see, um, you know, to see him join that team from up the coast— uh, that then became the premier team in the NBA. I mean, with a couple of brilliant picks and and taking a, 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 a you know a flyer on Steph Curry. How much do you think the Bus family misses Jerry West? Um, a lot. I mean, I think Jerry West. You know, he does a lot of things really well. Um, and mo- one of them is talent evaluation and scouting. I mean, one of the things, one of the reasons why the Lakers were so good is they would, they just nailed their draft picks. I mean, they had a lot of guys, even though they never really had high draft picks, they would really get the ones they had. They got them right. And those guys contributed, but also he was very good at scouting the younger players in the league and picking out which ones, you know, the first two, three years in the league, which ones would be good contributors um and i think you know if you if you want to read you know why this is going to sound like an oversimplification but it it, it, i think there's some truth in it you know dr bus always relied on jerry west to run the basketball operations right he he consulted on it 
you know, he made the final decision on things, but he really trusted Jerry West's opinion from a basketball perspective. Well, and to and to move and and make moves throughout the league, right? Some of it's it's not even just evaluation; it's having relationships with agents, it's figuring out how to get things done, how to work behind the scenes to line up a trade. So much of so much of lining up trades and signing free agents is just maneuvering behind the scenes, knowing who to call and how to lay these plans out. Um, he had Jerry West, but Jim Buss, his son, who was put into the role to succeed his father, he had Mitch Kupchak. And I don't know that you, sh- you know, Mitch Kupchak worked for Jerry West, but they are very different men. They have so very actually, different styles. So actually, what went wrong? Last thing I remember is Jerry Jerry West, maybe he did an interview with Brian Gumbel or somebody on Real Sports and said that uh, in the midst of that three-peat, there were periods where I just couldn't bear to watch. I, I would be going back into the tunnel uh, you know, at the Staples Center, I, I realized that this was just mm-hmm. exacerbating my anxiety. I wasn't having as much fun as I used to. And maybe once he was he was on the freeway listening to the end of a Lakers game or something like that, and he realized he had to step away from it. But was it a personality clash? Um, it's it's a little more complicated than that. Jerry, Jerry first of all, Jerry West is incredibly competitive. And so he's kind of always going to be that way. I don't know that it was anything specific to this per- but specific situation. But I think, I think Jerry West, I think the Lakers, you know, Mr. Inside, Mr. Outside, I still can't, I mean, God bless him, he's won all these accolades across several franchises, but he's ultimately a Laker, like Magic Johnson. Magic mm-hmm. Johnson, maybe he was, if he could have been given an in to buy 20% of the Pistons, well, the he might do it. Well, the second part of my answer, which I was... When I was starting there was, you know, look, some of that is just Jerry West. He's he's not he's always fiercely competitive. But the other part of the answer is I, I think that Phil Jackson and the way he ran the franchise and the way he sort of closed off the team to the front office. Um, that was different. I don't think Jerry liked that. I, you know, I think he wrote about it in his book even. Um, Phil Jackson had a closed ecosystem. He didn't want other people meddling in how he coached the team. Like he didn't want Jerry West coming in the locker room talking to the team. He didn't want that. And mm-hmm. if you're Jerry and you're the general manager and things have always been a certain way, it's um, and then the new guy comes in and and he runs things very differently than it had been in the past. It didn't sit. It didn't. It wasn't a good. Um, I don't know. Meld. It wasn't a great fit. Uh, and so I think some of that is some of that is just look. If you know Jerry, you know what I'm talking about. He's very competitive. He's just. He's he lives and breathes this stuff and sleeps so, and dreams this stuff. But you know what? Circle like, circle this back for me because Magic Johnson mm-hmm. is now trusted, you know, right hand to to Ginny Bus and Magic Johnson. You would think has very fond recollections of Jerry West, but he brought in what is it? Rob Palenka, who's a who's a a, a sports agent, to mm-hmm. be the general manager of the team. This is this gets into speculation, but do you think they have nostalgia to maybe reunite the team to bring Jerry West back in some sort of capacity? The, the fans certainly miss him. He might be happy up in his limited capacity up with the Golden State Warriors. It's certainly well, he still more... lives in Los Angeles. Sure, um, he still lives in LA and he consults for the Warriors. Uh, his son Ryan West works for the team. It's, it's a hard one for me to answer because I do think that there is a lot of respect for Jerry West, and I do think that there that he would help them in a lot of ways but he is uh, part of the Mount, Mount Rushmore okay mm-hmm. so when you know in reporting the story I, I was pretty diligent in asking this question to everybody I talked to is you know Jeannie was going to always turn to somebody she trusted and somebody she knew very well but also somebody who had the stature to really change the narrative and there was probably four only four guys who really fit that that's that description and it was Kobe Bryant, Magic Johnson, Jerry West or Phil Jackson. Phil Jackson kind of played himself out of the ball game, right? I mean, yeah. they you know the relationship with Jeannie fizzled and he's off in New York and that wasn't going to happen and you know I I think it was I think it's sort of Jerry's such a a presence and he's such a, a large figure in the NBA and especially in Laker history. It it might be hard for him to come back and and be in a a consultant role and a role of that level um, alongside Magic, right? I mean, he he would want to run the show as mm-hmm. opposed to work for the guy running the show. I, you know, I don't I don't know though, so I don't want to say that that's right or that's wrong. I just think it's almost a sign of how much they respect him sure. that it was a choice between them as opposed to okay, you can be the consultant. Now, um, you talk about respect uh, within the family and uh, as kind of adopted members of the Bus family. Mm-hmm. I'm going to quote from your story in ESPN. A few days before his death in February 2013, Dr. Jerry Buss summoned Magic Johnson to visit him in the hospital. Johnson had sold his Lakers shares and become part owner of the Los Angeles Dodgers in 2012, seemingly moving on from the dream of a role with the Lakers. Ginny had called and told me to come up that he wanted to see me, Johnson said. And he said it again. He said, 
quote, I always thought you guys would run it. That is Ginny and Magic Johnson. We were both sitting there crying about it because he knew I was right. Back then, it would have been a lot of resentment. It would have been difficult. Magic Johnson was absolutely right. Even with the team's basketball operations in his hands, Jim Buss had a tremendous amount of resentment for Johnson. At the same time that Dr. Buss was telling Johnson he wanted him to run the Lakers along with Ginny Buss, Jim Buss says his father told him, quote, I believe you can do it. Uh, so here you have, you know, the, the the storied owner kind of on his on his on his way out on his on his deathbed, um, not exactly providing for a neat succession, giving mixed signals across the board, and you could see in hindsight how that set the team up for its huge dry spell. Yeah, I mean, it's in a lot of ways when you can't make a hard decision, you may, you just kind of kick the can down the road, right? And so I think you know he thought of Jim Bus was his actual son, and I think he. He wanted him to succeed. I think they were very close. Like Jim would, Jim used to watch Laker games up in at the hospital with him the whole last mm. season. I mean, he was. They were very. They, they had a lot of connection points. They were both um, really into collecting. They had like they had rare stamps and coin collections, but they also they were mathematical minds. You know, so they you know Jerry Buss had. A, a PhD in chemistry um, and sort of put himself through college and, and worked his way through it. Jim Buss didn't, but, but they sort of had that, that, that connection point in terms of the way their minds worked. Um, and I think they were very, you know, I think he really wanted his son to succeed and grow into this role and, and be able to pull this off. And, uh, but at the same time, he also had a profound respect for magic not just as a as a basketball player, but as a person, and I think he he understood magic is what helped build the Laker brand. I mean, they, there's no Showtime without Magic Johnson. There's no Lakers as we know them without Magic Johnson. Um, and he had that respect for what Magic had become as a businessman as well. I mean, he you know, he used to he used to call Doctor Bus all the time and ask his advice business wise. I remember when he bought when he bought into the group with the, that was going to buy the Dodgers. He he said Mark Walter, who's the controlling owner oh, yeah, of the yeah. Dodgers, the Guggenheim Partners. Said Mark Walter kind of reminded him of Jerry Buss. I mean, obviously, if I know you, if you know both men, personally, they don't remind you of each other. Mark's no. a nice, genteel guy. Well, from the, Iowa. The, question, the question is, how is he going to do it? I understand the seasons don't overlap much, but he is really the public face of the Los Angeles Dodgers, who are now, you know, under under the new ownership after those those shyster owners who actually profiled for Business Week the auction for the Dodgers and the feeding frenzy to buy them, you know, for two billion dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, how how does a person juggle being, you know, minority owner of the Los Angeles Lakers and minority owner of the Los Angeles Dodgers? Um, well, I think the job with the Lakers has a lot of work behind it. I mean, he can't, this isn't a, he's not a Walmart greeter. You know what I mean? He's really going to have to dig in here and do some heavy lifting. And, and on top of that, by the way, I read that he owns the library to Soul Train. In addition to his investments in restaurants, cafes, the Magic Johnson movie theater chain, he is arguably the most successfully diversified ex you know, athlete. athlete. It's the very obverse of going bankrupt. I would yeah. love to have him on the show. And he's, you know, he holds the keys to, you couldn't even make a bid for the Dodgers without going through him. I mean, he was like the arranging banker. They say he might run for mayor of LA. He might become a U.S. senator. And all this 26 years after he admitted his HIV diagnosis. Um, so it's really an unbelievable amount of work to take on. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I asked him about it and he said, you know, I have people who can who can help me run my businesses. They're set up in such a way where he has people who can run Magic Johnson Enterprises, right? He can just kind of be there for the final say. And that's what that's what moguls do. You know, business moguls, they, they have people who run their stuff and they're just kind of involved on the big stuff and big decisions at the end. Or if they if there's a big meeting, they've got to take and, and talk to somebody. But I think with um I think with Irvin, he I think he'll, you know, in terms of where his priorities are going to be. I, it's it's going to be 90% of his time is going to be spent with the Lakers. And he, with the Dodgers, he wasn't all that involved. I mean, he was he was always – he went to a lot of the games and he would talk <laughs> to players. I always imagine – I always imagine like – Magic Johnson's always smiling, but could you imagine like Yasiel Pig squirting up in the outfield or something, getting chewed out in the in the clubhouse afterwards yeah, by like Magic Johnson? Yeah, he was Johnson. available to Magic. Like I Magic see. would make himself available to players. Like he would go in there and talk to Puig. I didn't he, that. I remember he had a relationship with Matt Kemp and he would sure. go talk to Matt so Kemp. So that's more of a – that's more of a – Sinecure, and that's more of a kind of a PR, you know, face of the organization yeah, I mean, thing. You don't had, see Walter and the Guggenheim partners people. Yeah, Magic wasn't the guy meeting with free agents. Magic right. wasn't the guy who was making big baseball decisions. They hired Andrew Friedman from the Tampa Bay Rays. They hired sure. Barzan Zaidi um, and jo- Josh Burr. They had Alex Anthropoulos. I mean, they had Alex Anthropoulos. They had um, 
they have a the best think tank front office in in baseball right now. I mean, all the four guys who could be who have run their own store, you know, sure. it's, it's part of their front office right now. So in a lot of ways, Magic is. Um, I would. I don't want to. It's it's diminishing his role to call him ceremonial, but but he doesn't have nearly as much to do with the Dodgers outside of sort of public face and some relations with with players, relationships with players. Where if they need a a competitor to talk to or a, somebody to lean on, uh, he's he's been in that role. But I don't. He's not the guy out there um, going to GM the winter meetings. When I look at your reporting, and again this this. Uh, Mm-hmm. exquisite, exquisite piece that you wrote for ESPN.com, which we're going to put up with the story. I wonder if, especially in the wake of the Clippers crashing and burning under Donald Sterling, but then uh, Steve Ballmer, uh, former CEO of Microsoft, stepping up and buying the team for $2 billion with no shortage of energy coming in, if it was ever broached over the past five years that maybe it was time for the bus family to, to get out and sell this to someone else, sell at the top. Well, I know that the only way they could sell it is if four of the six children decide to do so. And they wouldn't just say, okay, we're going to sell it. They would vote to quote unquote, break the trust. Um, there's a fam- there's four family trusts that control the lake, the 66% of the Lakers. So Jerry Buss set this up to make it very difficult for them to do that. And it would take four of the six. And right now, I think it's actually the other way. I think it's probably four to two to keep the team. The two who we believe to be in, you know, in wanting to either cash out or sell the team would be the older brothers, Jim and and Johnny Bus. Um, and that and that's not we. Uh, that's that's Janie Bus is the younger sister who's on record as saying that that's what she believes they want. Um, and you know they. Uh, they, I guess they suppose they could, but there's, it's a complicated thing. So the Forbes valued them at $3 billion. I actually think that's low. Um, when I remember when the Clippers were being, when they did the same valuations on the Clippers, I think it was 1 billion and they ended up selling for two. Right. So I, I think some of why the Lakers are so valuable is one, you can't buy another franchise. This is a legacy franchise. This is a, this is the, the branding is, is, do we remember? Do we even enough. have a cost basis for what Jerry Buss paid for them? I don't know the Great Western deal and everything. This is going back ancient history, nineteen seventy nine. Mm-hmm. But do we know what well, he bought the he bought the Lakers, the Kings, and the Great Western for him? And I believe it was, I, I off the top of my head, I can't remember, but it was a hundred and something million dollars. Um, and it, it's a funny sort of historical twist of fate. He he was about twelve million short. I think he had to borrow the last twelve million from Donald Sterling. That's so hilarious. And that Donald a, Sterling, right, with yeah. the NBA's gun to his head, is forced to sell the team for two billion dollars, which used mm-hmm. to be really the second fiddle, the, the laughing stock. Billy but, Crystal would be in the stands there, but now they're the ones who've been winning for the past five or six years. The reason why the Lakers are so valuable, though, is is one, the brand, like you cannot put a dollar value on that brand, but two is the television deal they've signed with Spectrum Sports. This is, this is one of the richest television deals in all of sports and it's locked in there. I mean, I think there's a, there are certain provisions in there where they can reset some of the rates, but they, at the time it was reported as a $5 billion deal. And so this is, you know, at the time when it was a, it was a watershed deal. I mean, I, that's pro- probably why the Dodgers got in trouble. Is they saw that deal and said, "Well, shoot, we have 162 games. We should get more than that, even." And then they made a, a deal with the same company, but they didn't have the same brand value that the Lakers did. And a lot of the networks around in Los Angeles never ended up carrying the Dodgers station. Um, they did carry the Lakers station, and when they made that deal, and that was that was really Genie Bus and Tim Harris. Tim Harris is the um, I know he has a really fancy title, so I'm probably gonna gonna undersell him. But he, I think he's the chief operations officer, um, chief marketing officer. He's, he and Jeannie Boss really run the business and, side. And, of and the this language. team throws off enormous amount of net income every year, oh, even yeah. even as a seller dweller. I mean, the merchandising material. Um, the and the, they're just huge. Kobe's last game. I mean, right. like, when you're talking about from a business <laughs> perspective, was the Kobe contract worth it? A hundred percent, and then some. I mean, he paid for himself every night of the week, and and for five more years. But my contention, Ramona, is that it pulled forward from you know it starved it starved necessarily reinvestment in the team or focus in the team for the next several years. Um, If that was true, 
And I, I, I see that argument and I don't disagree with it to some extent because I do think, especially in the last year, it stunted the development of some of the young kids because they would stand around and watch him. Um, but who else were they out getting? Like if they, it'd be one thing if you could tell me that, okay, because they missed on LaMarcus Aldridge or Carmelo Anthony. Well, or those, no, the word it, on the, the word on the street again is I'm not, I'm not the, the but I'm telling the you there were players reporter. who wanted players, to play. Players that wanted like, to play with Kobe Bryant. Yes. Isaiah Thomas is on record saying, I wanted to play for the Lakers. Kyle Lowry wanted to play for the Lakers. There are, there are dozens of players who were not stars but wanted to play for the Lakers. So the idea that Kobe, they didn't want to play with Kobe, yeah, there was some of that. But, but I think there were plenty of players who would have. They just weren't fitting the model that Mitch Kupchak and Jim Buss were pursuing, which was we need a superstar. And they were only going to spend their money on superstars, which is how you get into the situation this past summer where they signed these disastrous contracts with Timothy Mozgov and Luol Dang. Those are disastrous contracts. Full disclosure, we're talking to Ramona Shelburne, author of How Did the Lakers Get Here? The Inside Story of the Bus Drama. Uh, the Bus family owns the Los Angeles Lakers, has since 1979 a, a storied run of titles, but this has been a, a, a record dry spell of, of cellar dwelling under this family since the patriarch passed away in 2013. Uh, I do want to ask you uh, in the few minutes we have left, Ramona, kind of uh, what now? Um, you kind of the, there's this hope. I mean, the season started off with some hope. They they were 500. They were a bit over 500. Like, oh, mm -hmm. there's some spunk to this team. They were released from the shadow of Kobe Bryant. He had his 60. He dropped the mic. He left. There are a bunch of young players that they got. Uh, there were some personality disagreements. I mean, maybe they could offload Swaggy P, Nick Young, but even he stepped up to the occasion. And for the first time in a long time, this was a fun team to watch. You actually scoured the ratings here on the East Coast. The 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 um, um, listings to see when the Lakers mm -hmm. were playing and you'd stay up. But then that fizzled away quickly, even under this great coach that they brought in, Luke Walton, who won titles with them. So what went wrong and what's going to happen and how long is it going to take to bring this truck out of the ditch? Yeah, I mean, I, honestly, it's it, it's hard to say because you, you have to judge players who are 19, 20, 21 years old and who looks like they can really play in the NBA and who looks like they can be a star. And I think all three of their lottery picks the last couple of years, that would be Julius Randle, D'Angelo Russell, and Brandon Ingram. You see signs that they could be a star, but you also see signs that they may not be, that they may just be a, another guy and another player in the league that they can. And and so you look at this team and go, you know, they, they, they tried this all year to keep it together. And then clearly Jim Buss and Mitch Kupchak tried to give them some veterans so that if the young guys came together quickly, and could put together a good start to the year. There was veterans like Luol Dang and Timothy Mozgov that could maybe get them I mean, close Tim, to a Tim playoff Fay scene. Timothy Mozgov, right? what did they pay him? And they're they're benching him for the rest of the season. I mean, it was a he was a he was a punchline for Charles Barkley on TNT. Or when you know, I remember. Do you remember a couple months ago that they were trying to sell? Uh, the Bucks against the Lakers is a special NBA pass one night thing for $7. And yeah. all these guys were laughing. They're like, you should pay us $7 to watch the Bucks against well, the Lakers. The and, and I was just thinking, gosh, I mean, it's it's down to that. I mean, have we been laid that low? Yes. I mean, that's, you know, I think clearly the signings of Dang and Mozgov were reactions to missing on free, the big stars the past two or three years. Like they, I think they learned, okay, we can't sit around and wait on the biggest free agents this year. We're probably not going to get them. So they, you know, they, they had these, this idea at one point of, of trying to convince Kevin Durant to come to LA. It's, and, and then they realized they weren't even going to get a meeting with him. Um, because teams aren't looking guys, the best players now, they're not looking for the best market. They're looking for the best team and the best situation to win. So the Lakers, you know, radically change course and instead of waiting on the superstars and saying we're the lakers you should want to play for us um they in within i think it was mozgov signed about 45 minutes into free agency and the wall dang was signed within another day um to contracts that total 136 million dollars over the next four years and, and there are and no checks and balances in the system like genie i mean in your in your article like she didn't feel the urge to get up and say what the heck are you guys doing or mitch kupchak or this is going to tie us up for another five years and jeopardize our jobs right i mean i think that's what the result of it was is that she at the end of those two when they signed those two contracts it was done so quickly she wasn't you know she'd always said i trust you to run basketball but after those contracts um I think she jumped in, and, and from what I reported in the story, you know, she 
gave word to those guys, hey, you know, from now on, when you're going to make big moves like this, whether it's a trade or if it's if it's a trade involving any of the lottery picks that we've had in the last three years, I've got to be informed. And that was a real departure from the past. That was a real difference from the last few years where she's really tried to stay out of basketball and say, okay, you guys, this is your show. I'm not going to meddle. I think she saw those two contracts as a sign that they were now more interested in saving their own jobs than they were in building the team the right way. Because it's, it's very hard to make an argument that you've saved all this cap space, all this, all this financial wherewithal to sign good players. It's very hard to make an argument that, that you should have signed, saved all that money and then spent it all over the next four years on two guys who are just don't fit the profile at all. No, like they're no. role players and they're, they're 30 something. So by the time the young core of, of players, Jordan Clarkson and Julius Randall, Brandon Ingram, D'Angelo Russell, by the time those guys sort of bloom, you usually can't really tell what a player is going to be until they're 24, 25 ish. By the time those guys bloom and you see what you really have, Dang and Mozgov are going to be retiring. I mean, you, you want them to grow alongside veterans who are about 25 or 26 right now so that, you know, the same way in Oklahoma City, how they did with, with Harden and Westbrook and Durant, is that you, know, you get guys like Nick Collison and you get, you know, role players around them, Kevin Ollie, you know, they're, they're, they're the right players for them to grow with. Um, and Dang and Mozga for four years, I mean, at the end of those four years, you, you're going to really be regretting those contracts if you don't already. <laughs> well, they're regretting them after two years. They're regretting them after one year. Neither of them are even year. playing. I mean, Mozgov's not playing at all, and Dang, I think, has been inactive for a lot of their most recent games. Yeah, you see all this hand-wringing by, you know, Plashke and everybody that, the, should we even be winning games at the very end? At this point, the risk of losing one of those top three picks because of some convoluted structure mm-hmm. of, of of bad trades from yesteryear and, and draft acquisitions, you could get nothing out of the first round if you win a handful of more games. So you should be tanking against the likes of the 76ers or the, the Phoenix yeah, Suns. That- the, the draft pick that we're still talking about is that one of the draft picks the Lakers were gave to the Phoenix Suns as part of the Steve Nash trade. Oh gosh, Steve and at the Nash time, is gonna. I'm telling you, Steve Nash has been worse for this team than uh, than Larry Bird, <laughs> than yeah, Kevin at time, McHale. <laughs> at the time, you know, you never would have thought to put the, the you know teams now put protections on draft picks so you ensure a situation like mm. this doesn't happen. Where if the if the year the draft pick is supposed to convey comes around and you happen to be really bad, you don't end up giving away a top five pick or a top 10 pick to um, a team that you made a trade with five years ago, right? It's There's a reason why you put those protections on it. You always say it's top five protected, top 10 protected. On this one, the Lakers protected it top five for a couple of years, and then it's only top three protected the last two years. And so now they'll be sweating up until the lottery is it's drawn to see if they're even able to keep that pick. <laughs> I do want to ask, and to what extent is there universality in the lesson of kind of how the San Antonio Spurs do it? I don't recall a season for the past 10 or 15 years where they've tanked. This doesn't look like a feast or famine team. They're always they're always at least very good. Am I wrong in that, Reed? No, the the Spurs have built a culture that's sort of self-sustaining, but they, they definitely did tank, and it was the year that they got— Tim Duncan and the year they got David Robinson. <laughs> so they, they, it's not like they, they, even the Spurs are immune to tanking. Even the Golden State Warriors, there was a year there where they were flat out tanking because if they, I forget exactly the details of it, but if they finished, if their pick was mm, top nine, maybe it went to somebody else. And if they, if it, you know, otherwise they kept it. I think that's the pick that ended up becoming Harrison Barnes. Um, but all, all of the franchise in the NBA do it. The question is, for how long? Because usually, once you're in the lottery, it's a it's it's hard to get out. It takes a while for those young players to develop. They're playing with other young players. There, you know, you you can get a franchise changing superstar. Like look at Minnesota. They ended up with the number one draft pick and ended up with Carl Anthony Towns, who looks like an incredible player in this league and is already blossoming and is going to get better and better. Um, that's the same year the Lakers got D'Angelo Russell. So if the Lakers would have got as lucky as the Timberwolves. You know, if they would have been number one and the and the Timberwolves got the number two pick, who's to say the Lakers would already wouldn't be back already? Well, this right? is a this is a franchise, as you know, that has a history in Los Angeles of getting lucky. If it's not with Magic mm-hmm. Johnson uh, in 1980, then it's certainly with Shaq and Kobe Bryant in the mid 90s. It's with Pau Gasol coming in to save the team. You saw the aborted trade with uh, Chris Paul and Chris Paul 
then goes to the the Clippers, mm-hmm. and you kind of get the sense that you know at least under Adam Silver that this team is is at least due desperately for one last stroke. Maybe if somebody can blow the lottery ball in their direction. <laughs> yeah, but you know I think a lot of the things that people refer to as luck is actually just really good planning and execution by guys like Jerry West. I mean, I think, you know, the trade for Shaq, I mean, did they get lucky? Yeah, there was a loophole at that particular year that made it to Orlando couldn't match. It wasn't He wasn't a restricted free agent. So he hit free agency at a time when he could just sign with the team that, play, that paid him the most. Um, so, yeah, that's a little bit of luck, but it's also Jerry West figuring that out and maneuvering and getting themselves into the right position. I think you could say the same thing with the Warriors this year and Kevin Durant. Mm-hmm. There's no way the Warriors should be able to sign Kevin Durant as a free agent, but he happened to become a free agent in the one year the salary cap spiked by $20 yeah, million. Yeah, I was wondering why Adam Silver didn't scotch that. Like, hey, basketball reasons. You guys are the best record, and uh, you're getting this amazing player from the East, and that's going to throw parity up in the air. Mm-hmm. Close us out, Ramona. Tell me what we should be watching. Tell me what your predictions are. I mean, this season is a is a write off, but it should be an interesting off season, especially with the machinations. I mean, the brothers haven't gone away, and they were trying to lard up the board with uh, people who they were giving like thirty thousand dollars to non executive directors per month. Uh, it seems to be like you know at the intersection of uh, sports and, and business, kind of a palace coup in a in a Fortune five hundred sense. Uh, what's going to happen? Well, I think the the plan, the first plan that they tried with, um, or it, it looks like they attempted to, with the letter that Johnny Buss sent um, saying, okay, we have a board of directors meeting, we were going to have the annual meeting, which I thought, you know, to me, it sounded like, okay, it's in the corporate bylaws. And, um, but what I've, what I learned in reporting this out was that they don't, they really haven't had a, an annual meeting in years. <laughs> so the idea of calling a meeting is actually sort of provocative in and of itself. And then not only are you calling this meeting, um, to vote on a new board of directors, you're you're effectively proposing to replace two of the board of directors, um, the the two board of directors being Jeannie Bus and Joey Bus, uh, with Jim Bus and a man named Romy Chadhari, who's a businessman here in Los Angeles. Um, that I've but we yeah, we I've also reported. know Magic Magic Johnson has his big money allies too. I mean Patrick Sunshong, he's seen better weeks. His you know, he's the wealthiest yeah. bio biotech <laughs> investor. He's a billionaire out there. But but Magic mm-hmm. has, at least with the Dodgers, shown that he can get the big guns on his. I mean, he's not he's not dumb money that you bring in. He's he's smart basketball. He's storied basketball. And he has tentacles back to, to money if Jeannie needs that help on the board. Yeah, I, uh, I think the way you're phrasing it is sort of conflating a, a couple of issues that not exactly right. Magic's being hired for a job. He's not bringing money right now. Um, and I don't think she needs the money, uh, right now. The question is, is this going to be settled in court or is this going to be settled out of court? That's really what that we come down to. And May 15th is the first hearing, um, for the lawsuit that Jeannie's proposed with these guys, um, to sort of make sure that they don't try this hostile takeover again. Um, and I, and, you know, they've denied that it was a hostile takeover. Their lawyers on record are saying, no, she's misinterpreting that and overreacting. And, um, but you know, the, the, the letter speaks for itself, right? I mean, if you're proposing two new board of directors and by the way, this Romy Chadhari, um, he's a, he's had done business with Jim Buss and real estate deals. And, um, and he, he's on record now with his, his lawyer representing him in a statement saying, no, I, I never wanted this job and I, I don't want to be in the middle of this family drama. So I think that plan <laughs> is over with, like he's, he sort of he was shocked to read his name on that letter and even connected with this whole thing. Um, so it was a sort of clumsy attempt at this. Because um, usually when you're going to storm a palace, you don't tell everyone. I'm, what you're I'm doing, just look. Right? I'm waiting for the Netflix screenplay. Right? You guys at ESPN, you know how to do great docs. So I'm wondering if there's a great 30 for 30 series or six hour Oscar yeah, winning series those, that yeah, that comes out of this. I think um, I think you get to the point where it's it's going to go. It'll go. Um, you know, do they have to sort of pay the brothers to go away? Is it just the the easiest thing for them to do? Or do they go to court and they get nothing? And the court basically says, nope, the trust is very clear. Um, if you don't like what's going on, that's too bad. And maybe they even replace the two older brothers as trustees on that. Uh, you know, well, well, that's why it's in probate court right now. You ultimately, so, you ultimately don't think, though, that that puts enough blood in the water for a hostile suitor to come in for the entire franchise. No, I don't. I think the trust is clear. I've read it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's very clear. The only way that it they're vulnerable is if 
the number switch. It's a numbers game. You need four votes. And right now there's only two. So if if you were trying to be a sort of a hostile investor proposing a takeover, et cetera, um, you'd have to convince Joey, Jesse and Janie to switch sides. And mm-hmm. that's really that's where the that's where that's where the 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 fault is right here right if you if that's the fault line you know if you were like if we're talking survivor right and you're trying to line up um well, you you, know, votes, you, you right? resisted the urge to put in the lead genie's got a gun and i i commend you for that ramona <laughs> um well, i went more for game of thrones and swings your sword you know i did more of that let me that. let me just say in closing um i uh some pda for ramona shelburne here i love your byline i've been telling you as much i've been i've been sending lots of love over twitter i've been hounding you on vacation to come on this show you are like one <laughs> of the only reasons why i don't cut the cord Actually, you know, I, I just need ESPN? to see you on ESPN. Am You're, I keeping? Am I keeping the subscriber base? You are keeping the subscriber base. So Disney and ESPN owe you a fat bonus. Like you are getting <laughs> in the way of cord cutting. Thank you for excellent work. I mean, again, how did the Lakers get here? The inside story of the bus drama. Google it. Read it. I mean, read it over and over and over again. You are great and prolific, and I'm so grateful that you came on our show. Oh, thank you. Appreciate that. Ramona Shelburne of ESPN. Thank you so much. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Listen to us on NPR One and on iTunes at FullDRadio.com. On Twitter, we are at FullDRadio. Holler if you'd like to sponsor this fine show. Hey, we set the screen with a high basketball IQ. I'm Robin Farzad. Back at you next week.